0: Hello, and welcome to the RCC Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are currently in week three of our Apostles' Creed series. In this series, we are using the Apostles' Creed as an outline to teach key biblical passages that form the foundation of our faith. This Sunday, Paul Schleep from EFCA West taught from Psalm 8 about our God who is maker of heaven and earth. I grew up Lutheran, and so when I heard Kenny say that you were doing the Apostles' Creed, I thought, this is going to be like... Going home again. This is because we would recite it a lot. And looking back, it was one of, probably one of the best heritages I got out of growing out of a more formal church was the the church calendar, the seasons, the rhythms of the year, and then things like memorizing the Apostles' Creed and, and public confession, uh, which we in evangelicalism don't do an awful lot of, where we collectively say, you know, the, the reason God had to send his son was because we all sin. And so we got private confession going really good as Christians, but that that collective sense of we're in this thing together. Um, And I got um, maker of heaven and earth. Uh, Last week, I'm assuming you did, I believe in God the Father. I went looking for the sermon, couldn't find it. Um, Maker of heaven and earth. Our evangelical free church doctrinal statement puts it this way. We believe in one God, creator of all things, Holy, infinitely perfect, eternally existing in the loving unity of three equally divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then it goes on. That's all one article. But you notice it it also, like the Apostles' Creed says, we believe that God created everything that exists. And throughout the Bible, this is the stated fact of how this all got here. Start with Genesis 1.1. The very first verse in the Bible says, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And then later in Israel's history, when they had been taken into captivity because they hadn't been behaving themselves, and God said, well, I'll take you out of here for a while and then I'll send you back in. So as they came back in and they're getting settled, they're beginning to rebuild the temple, they're beginning to rebuild the walls. Nehemiah says in Nehemiah chapter 9, you are Yahweh, you alone. Let me just word about the names of God. Yahweh means I am the promise-making, promise-keeping God. I am the one who is to my people everything that I am. I am that I am, right? I am to my people everything that I am. So when he, Nehemiah identifies him, and says, you are Yahweh, you alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. The angels, that's their job, is to make sure that they make much of who God is. And then Paul, who was an earlier, early follower of Jesus, um, one day he was up on uh, a mountaintop in Athens where the philosophers all met and kind of argued things to no avail, kind of like being on Facebook. And um, in Acts 17, as Paul gets a chance to speak, he says, "...the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man." Yet He's actually not far away from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed His offspring. And then a little later in church history, uh, as the New Testament was coming to a close, there was a letter written to Christians who were Hebrew in their background. We call it the letter to the Hebrews. And there the author says in chapter 11, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God spoke it into being. Ex nihilo, for those of you who love Latin. Out of nothing, He created everything that is. Now, all evangelical Christians believe that God created the heavens and the earth. Where there are differences is in the how. Was it seven literal days? Seven periods of time, because that same word for day is used of seasons, of epochs, whatever. And I w- just want to tell you this morning, I'm not going to solve all of that for you. So, <laughs> uh, but I want you to know that I'm aware of it. In fact, again, in Evangelical Convictions, which is a book written about our family's uh, doctrinal statement, EFCA, it says this: Regardless of the differences on the process of creation among evangelicals, all affirm three things about the biblical teaching of creation. First, God and God alone is the creator of all things. Secondly, a second aspect of the biblical narrative of creation is that God's creation is ordered and purposeful. It's why we can have science at all, right? Because things can be repeated. Because creation is orderly. And third, a third emphasis in the Genesis account of creation is this. God's creation is good. Right? And we've been given that responsibility to shepherd it, to take care of it, to nurture it, not just to use it and throw it away. So that's the foundation. All of those verses I've just shared are the foundation of where I really want to go this morning so we can be in one text. Psalm 8 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, Sharon and I had the privilege of living on the central coast of California for 16 years pastoring a church in a town of 1100. Um, very little light pollution in a town of 1100. No streets and sidewalks. few sidewalks downtown, but it's just, downtown is like, it's like eight streets this way and about six streets this way. That's it. That's the town. That's where my kids grew up. And because there's no light pollution, Cher and I would often joke with our Southern California friends because we'd lived down here 15 years before going up there. We'd say, you know, the Milky Way goes right over our house. (laughs) Right? Well, it does over yours, by the way, in case you don't know. But you just can't see it because of the street lights and the freeways and the shopping centers and whatever. And one summer, we had a foreign exchange student from Tokyo. And in Tokyo, everything is open 24 hours a day. It's the only way that all those people living in that small space can get everything done. And she had literally never seen a star. And she comes from Tokyo to Santa Margarita, California, 1,100 people. And it happened to be one of those summers where there was a meteor shower, So we went out, laid the blankets out in the front yard. And first of all, just the thousands and millions of stars she could see, she just was beyond herself. And then the light show started, right? The meteors started going by. And she just, for about an hour, just kept saying, wow. 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 Even when there weren't meteors, she was just laying there going, wow. And the reason I tell that story is I think that's where this song got written by David. Remember, he was a shepherd before he was ever king. And he was because he was the runt of the litter, the last in the line. It, it says very clearly, yeah, David's out ten in the sheep, right? Because somebody's got to do it, and sheep are stupid, and nobody else wanted to do it. So, <laughs> that's that's a textual variant in the story. But anyway, um, it doesn't take us very much as a sanctified imagination to imagine that. I mean, David's the youngest, so he gets to take care of the sheep. But he's laying out there because eventually the sheep calm down and it's nighttime. And he's laying there out in the middle of nowhere with no lights whatsoever going on. Maybe a little fire. And he can see this great expanse. And it's out of that that I think that he writes this song. I don't know how long it took him to write it, but he did it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and it got collected in our collection here. Psalm 8. And he starts with O Yahweh, I already told you, that's the covenant name of God. I make my promises, I keep my promises, I am to my people everything that I am. Our Adon, it means the one who is Lord over everything. The one who must be obeyed. He says, O Yahweh, our Adon, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And I love the fact that he says it's, Yahweh, that personal God, that's the personal name of God. It's the only personal name of God given. Everything else is a title or a descriptor. But that one, he said, when Moses said, well, who do I say sent me? Tell him Yahweh sent you. The one who is to his people everything that he is. It's the personal name of God. He says, oh, Yahweh, our Adon, collectively. And it's just a bias I have that we, again, in our American culture, lose sight of the larger family to which we belong. And David, as he's laying there, not only is he overcome by the stars, which we'll see in a moment, but it's that it's not only my personal God, it is our Lord, the one who we collectively follow and obey. It's not just God and me, which is very 21st century North American. It's God and us, the family that God has been collecting he says, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's reputation, right? The whole earth just speaks of, and all of creation speaks of, the mightiness and the goodness of God. Paul talks about this in Romans 1. His divine attributes, his power, is shown in his creation. Now, fortunately, God also spoke very specifically, both in his word and in sending his son. But just that general creation is enough revelation. That you ought to assume there's somebody out there who's orderly, who knows what he's doing, and put this thing together. And that's then when you get in the second part of verse 1, that creation begins to join the praise. David starts it, and then creation joins in. You have set your glory above the heavens. As amazing as it is, for those of you who have actually seen stars, as amazing as it is to imagine all that's out there, God is above all of that. It's not that creation created God. It's that God created everything that we see. And again, I think sometimes in our culture we lose sight of that and we begin to worship the creation rather than the creator, the one who put it all together. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 29 to Israel, he says, You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? Right? Should the creator be confused with the object? That the thing made should say of its maker, He did not make me. Or the thing formed, say, of him who formed it, he has no understanding. So, Who who are we as the creation to tell God how he ought to be? I mean, I get a little disturbed. I usually behave myself. But when people say, well, my God would never. It's like, frankly, I don't care what your God would do. I care very much what the God who actually exists would do. I want to know what he thinks. Because we've said for years now that God created man in his own image and then mankind has been returning the compliment ever since, right? We make God in our own image. And so we begin to mold him and shape him and try and make him behave himself. And God says, I am. And there is no other. So I want to know what that God thinks and what he has done and how he relates to me. Then in verse 2, children actually join in the praise here. Dave starts it. Dave. He's a good friend of mine. Uh, David starts it. (laughs) Then creation joins in. And now children join in. Verse 2. Out of the mouths of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Basically what he's saying is while the heavens declare the glory of God, so do children because they both by their very existence praise God. Children are God's way of saying I'm not done yet. Right? I have more to do here. I'm still calling people to myself. I you know, came of age and came to Christ in the 70s when it was sort of like, well, maybe we should only have like one child, right? Or maybe we should have none. It's like, no, children are a way of saying God still is doing what He wants to do here. And part of that is bringing people not only into creation, but to come to know Him, to draw them to Himself. And then David moves from his own praise and worship to what I would consider the big question. Look at verse 3. When I look at the heavens... See, I wasn't making that part up about him seeing all the stars. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers... This is a phrase that's used in other documents of the time to have to do with tapestry, embroidery, sculpting. You know, those things that you start out and it keeps kind of changing and and morphing because you want to make it right. Same kind of imagery that's used, by the way, in Ephesians when it says we are his workmanship, we're his poem. How many have ever dashed off a poem and not begun to keep crafting it, right? Changing it, making it even better. You know God wants better for you, right? You do know that? That God calls us to himself and then he says, I've got, I've got so much more that I want for you in that relationship that we're going to have together. So when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, and then he comes to the question. What is man that you're mindful of him? This is mankind, by the way, not man-male, right? This is all of mankind. And the word here, usually the word that's used when we refer to man, and I had to look this up because, again, I I didn't study uh, Hebrew. Um, I uh, was a Christian education major in seminary. Um, So, because I didn't want to study it, I thought, I'll buy some good books. But what they tell me here is that usually the word used is Adam, right, Adam. And that's man created in the image of God. The word David very specifically chooses here is this, the one that means mortal, right? The the stuff of earth. Uh, And he says, so when he's trying to say, what is a mortal? Somebody who lives and breathes that you're mindful of him. Why why would you look at us? And the Son of Man, which is a contrast to the Son of God. Son of God is, is heavenly beings. The angels are called that sometimes. Jesus takes on that title. But here he says Son of Man, meaning just... Just a human, right? An earthling, if you were. David says, when I look at the expanse and then I think about where I fit in all of that, why would you even know where I am or what I'm doing and why would you care? Maybe more so. And that is the big question. It still is today, philosophically, when people will slow down enough to say, why are we here? What's the purpose? And if there is a God... What does he want with me? Is man just sort of the highest of the primates? Uh, Is he a blight upon an otherwise balanced world? You get some of that sometimes, right? We're we're the ones getting in the way of ecology doing its thing. Or are we the highest order of creation? Actually creating the image of God. And I won't keep you in suspense. The last one is is the one that Scripture very clearly says. That out of all creation, only one part of it was created in the image of God. And that's mankind. Angels weren't. Animals weren't. Trees weren't. And in case you think I'm making that up, let's look at verse 5. Because David gives the answer. See, he, he's just a little slower than I am on this. He says, yet, which is a contrast word, right? What, why would you even think of us, God? Well, we're just mortals and earthlings, yet, in contrast, you have made him and kind a little lower than the heavenly beings. Some of your translations will God. We'll talk about that in a minute. And you crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, the birds, beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. But for those of you who do underlining your Bible, underline the made him, crowned him, given him, put all things, right? Because who's taking the initiative there? It's God, right? Which is a reminder as David sings this song, as he develops this poem, he's saying, I'm amazed you even think about me, let alone look at what you've done. You've made me a little lower than the angels. You've crowned me with glory and honor. You've given me dominion over the works of your hands. And you've put all things under my feet. I've been married for 43 years, about 38 of them happily. And uh, we spread those other out. Just a little word of advice. <laughs> and we've had a good run. I mean, and we're in a good season now. But when I think of who I married, there are a lot of times I just think, why did she say yes? Right? Because I know it's in my heart. I know some of the ways I've treated her, some of the things I've said to her. And you magnify that between us and God. And, and David's saying the same thing. Not only are we now in relationship, but you've given me these responsibilities. You've, you've honored me. You've, you've given me dominion. You've, you've put things under my feet. You've given me responsibility. I felt like that as a pastor for 30-some years. Like, why would God put me in that role? Can I get an amen? Right? I mean, it's daunting. Now, I still remember early on in my pastorate, I was reading through 2 Corinthians, where Paul talks about his beatings and whippings and all that kind of stuff. And then he just has this almost throwaway line. And on top of all of that, there's the daily concern for the church. And I'd been a pastor for maybe five years or so, and I went, boy, do I get that now. That I've got people that God's entrusted me with at least helping point them in the right direction and come alongside in both their best times and their worst times. And this is what David is saying. It's like, are you kidding me? Now let's address this little thing about the heavenly beings As so some of your translations will have it, God. I do think, because of a quote from Hebrews, that he is referring to angels. But the word here is Elohim, which means strong one or powerful one. And it is one of the names that God reveals himself as. You will see it in one of the passages we're going to come to here in a minute. But it also is used of angels because they're powerful. Sometimes it's used of earthly rulers because of the position they're in. And basically, I think his argument here is, you you have put us just below the angels, who are pretty amazing, Um, and you've given us glory and honor. I mean, in what ways are we different? I already mentioned that we are created in God's image, unlike any other part of creation. The angels fell, but God didn't provide them a redeemer. Have you thought about that? There's a great old gospel hymn that says, holy, holy, holy is what the angels sing, And I'm going to help them make the courts of heaven ring. But when I sing redemption story, they will fold their wings. Because angels never felt the joy that our salvation brings. The angels who are still with God are the ones who didn't fall. The ones who fell, they just said, we're done. Now I think, theory, part of that is because they were in the very face of God and rebelled, right? We're just stupid, right? We're short and blind and all the things that we get described as. And God in his grace took pity on us. Angels are ministers to mankind. Hebrews points that out. Angels are not are our ministering spirits, excuse me. They're sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. And then this passage is fascinating to me in Ephesians 3. It's another one you want, might want to write down and look at this afternoon. Cuz angels learn about God's wisdom by watching us. That's all scary. But listen to what Paul says. Of this good news, this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints. Sounds like David, doesn't it? This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, but he would argue is now made manifest, is shown, so that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities where? In the heavenly places. The angels get to see that while it didn't make sense from their standpoint, and certainly often doesn't make sense from our standpoint, God's doing something that brings him honor and glory because he's, sought, he's sent his son to take our place. That's God's grace. Just a little word about if, in fact, it is Elohim, God he's talking about there. We just want to be clear. We're creating God's image. We're not little gods, right? So when he says a little lower, uh, we'll look at Hebrews in a minute, but it's, you know, way lower than God, a little lower than the angels. And we're created to inhabit God's creation. Uh, I told you, you we're going to have to be jotting down lots of stuff because it's important. Isaiah chapter 45. For thus says Yahweh, who created the heavens, He is Elohim, the strong God. Who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh. There is no other. Right? We were meant to live here. We were given a purpose to be here. And then as I alluded to in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer, whoever he is, of this letter to the Hebrew Christians, takes this passage out of Psalm 8 and gives it an even deeper meaning. Listen to what he writes in Hebrews 2. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. It has been testified somewhere. I take great comfort in that. He doesn't know where it is. He says, uh, it has been testified somewhere. You know how often you're trying to quote a verse to somebody and you go, you know, it's, it's in the New Testament, right? Well, you now have biblical authority to do that. Um, it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the Son of Man, that you care for Him. You've made Him a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned Him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under His feet. And then the writer goes on to say, Now in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside of His control. At present we do not yet see everything in subject to Him, but we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the sufferings of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He takes Psalm 8 and says, Man, you think that David was impressed with how much authority and power that God gave him, just as humans. That ain't nothing compared to Jesus who became human in order to take our place and pay for our sin. He, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says... It's a great application for all of us in Psalm 8. But then you overlay that to Jesus, who is God, who came here to be one of us. And wow, is He crowned with glory and honor. And boy, does He honor God. And that brings us to verse 9. It's a short song. But notice David ends with praise. He began with praise. He ends with praise. And he just repeats himself. O Yahweh, our Adon." How majestic is your name in all the earth. I think he does that. He he does this bookend. One, because it's creative. But two, I think he wants us to know, and all those who would be singing this song, and he, he thought maybe it'd just be him, but to remind himself that man's glory and honor, great as they are, and man's stewardship of God's creation, as great as that is, are second place to the call of man, all of mankind, as both a servant and a worshiper right? Because sometimes we get caught up in, yeah, I'm a little lower than the angel, and I've got all this authority, and you know what? But that doesn't call us to brag. It calls us to worship. To say, there is a God, and I'm not Him. That He is above everything, but He knows where I am. That He's absolutely perfect. He knows I'm not, and He did something about it. And so David starts and ends this great song about God's greatness and mankind's greatness with this thing. But never lose sight of the fact that he alone is God. And he alone is worthy of our worship and our praise. And I think sometimes in our 21st century we get this thing flipped to where we come very short, if not actually worshiping humans. I mean, we have what? American Idol. At least they're honest about it, right? But... But seriously, isn't that what it's about, right? These people become our idol. That's not a good thing, by the way, (laughs) just in case you were wondering. Now what? What do we do with this? I always have either a so what or a now what or a combination of the two. One, so you know I'm almost done and you you can relax. But the other is, again, I think Scripture is given to us in order that the Holy Spirit might make changes in our life, might help us to be more and more like the God who created us. The first one I came up with, and by the way, if the Holy Spirit's speaking to you specifically about something else, go there. It's one of the reasons you ought to always have your Bibles open because sometimes it's the verse above the ones I quote the Holy Spirit wants to get your attention on. But here's three of them that I came up with. One is we need to steward our good creation. You know, Christians should have been at the forefront of things like recycling, repurposing, (laughs) remaking, right? Because this is creation. This is what God made. And He told us to take good care of it. Right? We only get one. So take good care of it. It's not to be worshipped, and we have people who go there, but He intended us to inhabit it and care for it, to be good stewards of this gift. Remember, creation is good, of this good gift of God. Second, we need to treat people a little lower than angels, but not like little gods. Because we are immortal, but we're not deities. See, words matter, right? We're immortal, meaning we will now live forever. Someplace. But we're not deities. We're not gods. And that's an important distinction. All people, regardless of whether they know Jesus or not, regardless of the lifestyle that you might feel comfortable or not, or who may have voted the same as you or not in the last election, are all created in the image of God. Right? They all got that. Now, not everybody has, in gratitude, responded to God but they're still creating the image of God. That's an important thing. It's important when I was driving up here this morning. Guy cut me off on the freeway. I came very short to using international sign language. (laughs) Um, And you know where my prayer went? And I think partly it's because it was marinating in Psalm 8 all week. It's, Lord, what is in me that it would elicit that kind of response, right? I didn't die. I'm still going to get to church on time. And it's not my problem he's being a jerk. So what... What does that elicit in me? I am still broken, right? And he's created in the image of God. And therefore, if we had a conversation, which we didn't, it's probably good, but if we'd had a conversation, I needed to treat him in a way that says, you matter. Because you also are created in the image of God. And you're just broke like me. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. It comes out of his book, The Weight of Glory. It's long, but I think it's worth it. He says, It may be possible for each of us to think too much of our own potential glory hereafter. It's hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. Small g there, by the way. He's just talking about being immortal. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, they're all mortal. And their life to ours is as a life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must must be of the kind, and it is in fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, and no presumption. And our charity Must be real and costly love, with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love, as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Hear what he's saying? And I would recommend you you get a hold of that quote and, and read it through a couple of times. But he's basically saying you are always rubbing shoulders with people who are created in the image of God and have this great potential should they respond to the good news of God to live forever in God's presence. And if they reject, will become more and more unlike God because they will not acknowledge him as Lord. That's who we deal with, both here when we come to church and out there in the everydayness of life. And this has been very convicting to me. Because again, I tend to look at people for what they can accomplish or what they know or who they hang out with or do they agree with me. And yet no matter who they are, they're created in the image of God and they deserve, as David writes in his song, to be treated as people created in the image of God. A little lower than the angels. Which brings me to my third application. And it's the one that David started and ended with. Worship. It's why we get together every week. I don't know about you, but there are Sundays I just don't want to go to church. Sometimes even when I'm going to preach. It's like, and yet why do we go? We go because we know God deserves a portion of our time. To sort of recalibrate how we look at life and how we look at each other to once again look at true north, which is God and His character, so that as we go out the rest of the week, we're, we're a little more, a little closer to how God looks at life. And it's why we sing songs before service. It's why we sing them after the, the text, so that our hearts can be open and respond to everything that God is and all that He wants for us. Let's pray. Oh Yahweh our Adon, How glorious is your name in all the earth. And you have created us a little lower than the angels, but you've crowned us with so much. We take it for granted. We take one another for granted. Father, would you use your word this morning to help us see again that our neighbors, our friends, even our enemies are created in the image of God. And your desire for them is that they would be in relationship with you and spend eternity in your presence. May we carry that burden every day. And may we look for opportunities to serve everyone we meet. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Remembrance Community Church Podcast. You can find all our weekly sermons online at remembrancecommunity.org forward slash sermons. Thank you for listening.